turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Wednesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And what we try to do every weekday at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word, is take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. There's all kinds of ways that you can send them to us. But our preferred method is that you would call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Uh, If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of your screen, and everything else will be hands-free, and you can be safe and ask your question. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Hey, uh, because it's Wednesday, Paula is back. She'll be here for the show tomorrow on the day day edition of the program. Thank you all for your prayers. I saw her just for a minute uh, before the program started. She's back. Her and the ladies are back from their pastor's wives retreat and uh, they looked blessed, refreshed and rested, which is a good thing. And uh, maybe Paula, I'm sure will have something to say about it on the program tomorrow. Hey, tonight, because it's Wednesday, it's our Old Testament Bible study. And I have a really, really, really sweet chapter tonight, Isaiah chapter 54, which is also a really personal um, chapter for for. Paula and me, most notably for Paula, it's sort of her life chapter, a promise that the Lord made her a very long time ago. Uh, So that is tonight here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Let me get to the questions that we had sent in, and we will go from there. Uh, The first one is a call that we got. It's anonymous. Um, uh, Just as the program closed yesterday, and we sent a quick We'll answer it on the top of the program tomorrow, um, but it is um, uh, it is from Anonymous, and it starts out, I'm too embarrassed to tell you what I'm struggling with at this moment, Pastor. Uh, I've struggled with it for a very long time, and I'm so sorry uh, that I give in. I've asked God to forgive me, and this is the first time I've done anything like this in a very, very long time. And I just don't know what door I have opened. I don't know how it came today. But, Pastor, will God forgive me for doing this? You know, these are these are times, and this is for the caller, but it, it's also germane to, to everyone in the audience as a believer. This is a time when we who are Christians need to know what God has done. You know, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to worry, we don't have to listen to the lies of the enemy about what uh, God will do. Will he forgive me or won't he forgive me? There's no way, just considering God's character, his natures and the promise that he made to us, there's no way he will withhold forgiveness from you. 
I know we feel guilty. The devil likes to make us feel even guiltier. If he can get us to feel really, really condemned, then what we end up doing is opening ourselves up for further attacks. So here's what you need to know, Anonymous, and you need to know this deep in your heart. And please don't ever forget it. Your sins, past, present, and future, that means the sins you haven't even committed yet, are already washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, I always picture a book. You know, we know there's a Lamb's Book of Life for those of us who are believers. Now, there's a Book of Life for unbelievers, and all of the sinful things that they've done are recorded in that book, and they're going to answer for those sins. But for for you and for me, um, and, and I'm not a musician, so don't I don't want this to sound too spiritual, but, but there's an old song by Crystal Lewis that said, it's called The Bloodstained Pages. And in the Lamb's Book of Life, when, when, when the book opens to your name or to my name, what we're going to see is all those charges are still in that book, but there's blood-stained pages, and you can't read the charges because they're, they're covered by the blood. And imagine God thumbing through those pages, thinking, wow, there was a lot of stuff in here, but I can't make any of them out because all of those sins are covered by the blood. That's the precious promise that we have. So Anonymous, God will forgive you. It's very important that you understand that he's eager to do it. And as your heart is already repentant, now is the time for you to close the door once and for all for the enemy to pound you with guilt. Remember, guilt is his friend. And when we give in to feeling guilty, we're opening ourselves up to all kinds of, of spiritual attacks from the enemy of our souls. His job is to um, steal, to destroy, to kill. He only lies when he's talking. And if we understand that, then we won't be, we don't need to be affected by those lies. Now, you did say something in this anonymous that I want to share with the radio audience that I think is important. Um, You said you don't know what door you open. When we have certain sins, sexual sin is one of them, uh, doing drugs, giving the enemy access to our subconscious, um, um, uh, pursuing uh, familiar spirits, uh, delving into things like fortune-telling or or, or, uh, uh, that kind of nonsense. We're, we're, we're in those cases giving Satan such an opening to destroy us. Now, why would we want to do that? So it's true there are some things that are worse than others. Paul says when a man sins sexually, he sins against his own body. All other sins are sins committed outside the body. The, the implication clearly that when we do things like this, then we're giving Satan a leg up to destroy us. And we don't want to do that. So pursuing holiness, genuine repentance, and then pursuing holiness is something that we ought to practice daily. And we can keep those doors closed that Satan has opened. He is not going to stop tempting you. Again, that's his job. He does it well. But what you really need to understand, Anonymous, is that all of those sins are covered by the precious blood of our Jesus. So I hope that comforts you and gives you some direction and some encouragement. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question again. Um, How can I hope to finish well in my walk if pastors keep falling or committing suicide or like Josh Harris, just turn their backs on God altogether. Uh, Anonymous, we don't have to give in to the same kinds of sins that others do. You know, our walk with Jesus is individual. And and what we have to do by faith is take the promises that are given to us by the Lord in his word and understand that what somebody else does has no effect on what I do. Tonight, I'm going to read a verse out of Isaiah chapter 54 that says, No weapon formed against me will prosper or prevail. I believe that. I really believe that. So if I'm tempted or if I'm considering giving up because things are hard, 
then all I have to do is remember that God's Word contains promises like that. Um, it is distressing, and I want to be as open with this as I possibly can. We had a, a program, I think it's been a couple of weeks now, uh, where we got a call about uh, a third pastor in the Southern California area, uh, pastors of mega churches, or this particular one was an assistant pastor. Uh, but um, all three of these men struggled with depression for a very, very long time. Um, they were fighting the fight, and they just lost. Now, all three of those men are in heaven. But the idea is because they didn't overcome the lies of the enemy has no bearing on you or me. And I think, I think what we have to do is keep our eyes on Jesus instead of having our eyes focused on other people. People are always going to let you down. You know, I love what I do. I, I, I love Jesus. I try to walk with him as close as I can. But here's the reality. The reality is I've been doing this for more than 24 years now, and I know I've let some people down. I know I've disappointed some people. I didn't give them the response that they wanted or, or the response they thought they needed. Men, humans, are always going to let you down. Jesus never will. So while I understand where you're coming from, don't let the enemy, and here's what he's doing to people all over the world because of this, those who read these articles and find out, especially Josh Harris, who's such a famous so-called Christian, well, you know, if he blew it, if he doesn't believe now, how do you know it's true? We've got to stand firm, immovable. Our faith needs to be like Jesus' face when he went to Jerusalem. Isaiah 50 says his face was as flint, unchanging. And our faith has to be on that type of ground, that type of foundation. Another thing to consider, Anonymous, we know that there is a great falling away coming. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The falling away is an apostasy, a turn away from the word of God. And in these last days, there's going to be a shaking out of our faith because we're going to see lots more people fall away. They went out from us, 1 John 2.19 says, to demonstrate they were really never one of us. And what we're going to find is lots of people. We see it happening with the LGBTQ agenda, people accepting open, willful sin. And this falling away is just getting started. So we're going to see a lot. That's why it's more important that we have to be immovable. Let's go to line one and talk with Jeff. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hopefully you don't have any more lukewarm White Castle hamburgers after today. <laughs> Jeff, it was awful. I told Paula when she got back, I told her, I said, uh, I still have White Castles left because I couldn't eat the ones that I did. So she just laughed at me. She, I think it was it was sort of a, a sympathetic laugh, but uh, she just laughed with me. So she's home. I'm okay now. That's awesome. Well, um, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit works, even when you're just talking for an hour. Uh, that anonymous question was already uh, on my heart to, to ask you about today. So kind of along the same lines of what you're talking about now in Isaiah 54 and everything, the promises that we have as Christians. But I have a friend who's a former pastor who fell from grace, and he was just the uh, he was a maverick in, in the denomination that he, he just lost touch. And he had a lot of friends that men like me that he was actually in accountability relationships with. And, you know, as he started to kind of lose it, uh, you know, he started to avoid his friendships. Um, anyway, he, he's, he's gone through about, he's been almost 20 years out of the ministry now. And he's now been diagnosed as clinically depressed. And he's been suffering with with really deep depression now over the past two years and going to a psychiatrist and finally landed on some kind of medication that's actually helped him. Uh, and I, I just I wanted you to, to elaborate a little more 
in, in your, your so genuine way uh, about Christians in depression, understanding the attacks that are upon us all the time, and especially those that are in service, uh, and also uh, Christians in suicide. And I'll let you have, I'll let you take the radio waves. I'll hang up now. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate the call and, and, and the heart behind the question. Uh, a couple of things. I'm going to separate my answer to you, Jeff, because um, uh, I want to talk about your, your friend uh, first, and then we'll get to a, a more general discussion about depression uh, and suicide. Um, you know, when you go to a psychiatrist, it's the, the pressure is on them to come up with a diagnosis. And I've had this so many times with people that were once Christians or once pastors. They were serving fruitfully, and then they fell away because of some sin. And then the enemy just pounded on them. And and I, I tell them all the same thing I'm going to say about your friend. Now, I don't know him, so none of this is personal. But when I see somebody who was a pastor, somebody who was serving fruitfully, and this doesn't matter whether it was uh, serving as a pastor fruitfully or just serving their church fruitfully, the, the gifts of the Spirit were flowing through them, uh, and then they fall away because of sin, and then they f- fall into this depression, uh, what they need to do is fight. They don't need meds. This isn't a clinical depression. They need Jesus. They need that once thriving relationship that they, they enjoyed the, the, the time when life was the best. You know, Jeff, I tell people all the time when they come in here and things are going really, really bad in their lives and they've kind of drifted away from the Lord, I'll ask them the question, so, so explain to me, when was the best time of your life? And invariably, they'll say, oh, it was a couple of years ago when I was really walking with Jesus and things were great. And I say, well, well then you've diagnosed yourself, your problem isn't depression. Your problem is the fact that you're no longer walking with Jesus as you were when things were going great. And I think we have to love people enough in Christ to tell them the truth because meds are not going to solve this guy's problem. Uh, Meds can make him feel a little better. Meds can sort of numb the effects. But remember, there's an enemy. And I believe depression is his sort of nuclear bomb mass destruction weapon against Christians. And he's going to keep playing that that hand. And and what we need to do is tell people the answer is Jesus. You know the answer is Jesus. Now the problem with depression and the enemy attacking is that the one thing that you know you need to do you don't feel like doing. Tell people you need to get up. You need to read your Bible. You need to go out and share your faith. You need to, 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 to minister to the needs of others. Be a servant. And when you're depressed, that's the last thing you feel like doing. And too often, what depressed people do, Jeff, is that they they wait until God fixes them, then they'll serve. And that's like saying, Jesus, okay, you show me yourself, and then I'll believe. Jesus said, no, 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 believe, and then I'll show you who I am. And so what we need is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's... that's question specific to, to your friend uh, things aren't going to get better for him. Again, he can numb himself with meds. But the problem is, is that he doesn't really believe as a pastor what he probably taught. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. I think another issue, Jeff, is that there's a whole bunch of people who... will only shake the depression if God restores them to the position they were in. I have a, a man who is a casual friend uh, of a mega, mega, mega church uh, on the east coast of, of our country. Uh, and he fell into sin, and his, his whole thing is, well, if I can't come back and pastor, that's my gift. Um, you know, he's, he's blown the opportunity to be a pastor. So what he has to do now is mature enough, believe what he used to teach, and say, well, Lord... I can't be a pastor, but I can help pastors, or I can, I can, I can minister to others, or I can counsel. Especially having gone through my own sin, I, I can, I can be used to counsel others. So use me in any way you, you, you see fit, Lord. And the joy of the Lord would come flooding back because purpose and meaning and direction would come flooding back as well. 
But instead, too many, they just sit on the sidelines and say, well, if I can't pastor, then what's my point? What's the point? You know, uh, uh, this friend I'm talking about, um, every Sunday is torture for him because he he's not doing what he knows he was born to do. So now what he needs to do, what your friend needs to do, Jeff, is to find a new purpose in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and serve the Lord with a glad and joyful heart. Is there loss? Of course there's loss. But Jesus, in his presence, is fullness of joy. The other question you asked, Jeff, is about suicide, Christians and suicide. Uh, Christians do commit suicide. Sadly, I just talked about three pastors uh, who I am, I, I, I know, know one of them briefly, but but all of them were, were men who had a heart for the Lord. God was using them uh, uh, in megachurch situations, and, um, and depression still got them. So there are believers who just lose the battle with the devil for their soul, for their life. Not for their soul, rather, but for their physical life. And uh, it doesn't keep them out of heaven. The only sin that keeps you from heaven is the rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the, the, the testimony of Jesus convincing us of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. If we die in that condition, there's no remedy for sin. But just like I said for the first caller today, all our sins, past, present, and future sins we haven't even committed yet. All of those covered under the blood. Suicide is a very serious thing. Christians have no right to commit suicide. Paul says that we're not our own. We're bought with a price. We truly, desperately need to understand that. And when somebody comes to me, and I've had Christians over the years, well, what would happen if I commit suicide? People would be better off without me. I wanted to recognize that's a lie from the enemy, but just as logically as I can lay it out there, uh, you're not your own. You're bought with the price. You cannot do this. And if you're a real believer, you will not do it. Now, that's what I'm trying to convince them before it happens. But but the fact that, that some lose doesn't mean that their faith in Jesus is suddenly null and void. The Catholic Church's teaching on, on suicide being a mortal sin uh, has caused so much pain and so much damage over the centuries, and it's simply not true biblically. It's simply not true. Jeff, thank you, and appreciate always your questions. They come from a really, really neat heart for the Lord and for God's people. 340-9585, here's a question from Joy. Um, Should we take Paul's writings as seriously as we take the words of Jesus in our Bibles. Uh, Joy, the answer is yes. They're all the words of Jesus. Everything Paul wrote, or John, or Peter, or James, or Jude, or the writers of the Gospels, uh, or Luke in the book of Acts, um, everything that that was written was the, the breath of God, the Spirit of God pushing the pins of men. So the fact that something is in red letters in your Bible gives it no more value, no more strength of force than anything else written in your Bible. Joy, let me also say this. You know, I've had people say, well, you know, it only says one time in the Bible. Well, if it says something one time in the Bible, that's the very Word of God. And since it says something once, since it's the Word of God, it has just as much force and value. Now, there are some things, it is true, Joy, that are repeated throughout Scripture. And repetition is an important hermeneutic. When something is said once, it's rock solid, it is perfect, it's vital. When something's said twice, it's like the, the double amen when Jesus, when he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he's drawing your attention to it. Um, I'll often tell the church, now please listen. Now they're already listening, but but what I'm doing is I'm saying what I'm about to say now is really critical, so listen, tune in. And so that's what the repetition in the word does. But it makes it very, very important. And um, in direct response to your question, um, the most obscure verse in your Bible 
has as much weight and force and godliness and holiness and purpose as any other thing said in your Bible. It is a very dangerous thing because it appeals to us logically. Well, of course, Jesus is God, so if he said it, it's like extra God stuff. But that's to misunderstand your Bible. That is to misunderstand the dynamic of what our Bible is and how we got it and who the real author of our Bible is. So that's how important it is, Joy, no matter... Where it's written, if it's in your scriptures, it is absolutely vital that we understand it is the very word of God, of no greater or no less value than the words in your Bible that are written in red ink. Good question. You know, we're we're in the last uh, 30 seconds or so of the program, of, of this half of the program, um, Remember to learn to study your Bibles and you won't get caught up in those kinds of questions. We have 30 minutes left in the Wednesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We would love your live calls. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half hour of our program, 340-9585. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one from Caleb. Uh, Pastor, on a personal question. How do you maintain a healthy balance of work and rest? And how do you keep your family a priority when there is so much ministry to do? Um, Caleb, let me, I'll I'll answer this both from a, from a spiritual perspective and a practical perspective. Um, Paula is my family here. Now we've got, you know, tons and tons of people here at Calvary Chapel that are family. Um, but but Paula and I decided a long time ago, uh, God answered her prayers, um, uh, rescued me from the pit of hell. Uh, we owe him everything. So Paula and I are partners in this. So we don't look to balance um, ministry. Uh, we're not looking for time off. Now, God provides time off. Um, I'm not going to be here next week. Pastor Ken will be doing the program live. I'm going to take four days, Paul and I, and we're just going to sort of hang out and and get refreshed before Joy of Jesus and the other things that we've got going on. Um, so God provides plenty of opportunity to rest, um, but but we're we're all about the work we're called to do. Uh, Paula is my partner in this work, so I don't have to worry about offending her because I spend too much time at church or anything like that. Uh, I do uh, a lot, and I don't mean this in a poor me kind of way. It's a privilege. But uh, I teach three separate Bible studies a week. Um, uh, on those Bible studies, it's a Wednesday night Old Testament, a Friday New Testament, and a, and a different New Testament book on Sunday morning. So we do three services then. Uh, that takes a lot out of me. So practically, I make sure that um, I have Saturdays. Uh, I try to keep them as much for rest as I can. Um, I don't do late things. I don't go out and do social things on Saturday nights. Just as I'm getting older, I'm just not able to do it. Um, so, so I think Caleb, that's the answer, and and um, uh, I can tell you, Paula never feels like she's less than a priority. Uh, my kids are grown. It's different for me than it is for some of my other pastors. I don't want my pastors to miss their kids' baseball games or soccer games or basketball games or anything else. So, whenever possible. Um, you know, they're committed to their family. Uh, they need to be with their children growing up. They need to be um, helpers for, for their wives uh, as as being a mother. Even if, if it's a full-time mom, that's a full-time job, and it takes a lot. Um, so uh, they have a little bit different 
set of rules than I do. And honestly, Caleb, from my perspective, uh, I, I just want to, I want to, until I go be with Jesus, I want to be serving. So there's no plans for me to retire. I mean, we've made contingency plans should something happen, but there's no plans for me to retire. Um, I'm not looking for more time off. Um, in addition to the Bible studies, I have Saturday morning prayer. Paul and I are always here. If we're in town, we're here. Um, um, twice a month, I have a pastor's discipleship class. It's a two-hour class on Saturdays following prayer. So there's lots and lots of stuff to do. In addition, we do counseling and, and um, you know, um, uh, uh, God's Spirit is enough. So, Caleb, I hope that's what you are looking for in that question. Here is a question from, uh, let me see, from Marty. Pastor Ron, women can't be pastors, so why do women go to seminary? Um, well, Marty, they go to seminary and Bible college, I assume, uh, because they're called by the Lord to do it. Now, I, I'm not naive. I know that not everybody has the same priorities. Like um, um, every Bible college that uh, I've ever known anything about, uh, uh, there's a group of women that go there to find a husband, a group of men that go there to find a wife. Um, a lot of young people especially are sent by their parents to Bible colleges or seminary because they think, well, at least it's a safe place to go while they're trying to struggle through things. Marty, when I was in Bible college, there was a whole bunch of people that were there who weren't even saved. So um, there's different reasons. Now, it is also true that there are uh, denominations, a lot of them in our uh, Western church culture, that uh, will freely ordain and accept women as pastors and preachers. It's it's a horrible thing to do, but but they do it anyway. And there are women who want the one thing that God said they can't have. I mean, that's just part of our human nature. So uh, the 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 reasons that they would go and the goals for going would be as diverse as the number of people that go. So there isn't a one size fits all answer to that question, Marty. Uh, but you are correct. Women biblically cannot be pastors. Uh, there are some. And, and by the way, Marty, we've sent some of our uh, young people, young women and men, uh, to Bible colleges uh, just to get them uh, uh, to be a bit more grounded, get them away from their parents, a little bit more grounded in the Word. And uh, uh, I, I've got one young woman who's come back from Bible college. Uh, we just put her on our payroll here, put her on paid staff. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, she's just been a treasure. So there's um, lots of different reasons, some of them good, and maybe some of them aren't so good. We just have to leave that to the Lord. Susan asks the $64,000 question. I gave away my age. There used to be a TV quiz show called the $64,000 question when 64000 was a lot of money. Susan says, how can the church be unified in the light of the huge political differences between its congregants? Um, Susan, I think because of our overemphasis on politics, we've really muddied the waters. Jesus never asked us to be unified um, in in our political views. Um, Jesus simply asks us to be unified in him. We need to be unified in him. We need to be unified in the word. And, and, and that's the unity that he speaks of. But the idea that whether you're Democrat or Republican, you may remember that last week I got pounded uh, with, with responses from Christians, people that say they're Christians, uh, because I suggested that uh, a lot of the behavior that Donald Trump exhibits is very unchristlike and 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 needs to be called out by Christians. Oh, you can't do that because then abortion is going to win and the Democrats are going to win and we know God is a Republican. I mean, that kind of nonsense is going to divide our church, Susan. Inside the walls of the church is not a place to be discussing politics. It's simply not. The purpose of church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Unless your ministry is going to be called into elected office, then there simply is no place for that kind of division. 
let me rant for a minute here, Susan, because this is one of my pet peeves. If you could see, and 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 if you're like the rest of the world, you're on Facebook. I'm not. Um, all I hear is what people talk about on their Facebook stuff, the arguments they have, the friending and the unfriending and all that nonsense. Um, the the ugly conversations regarding politics that Christians participate in on social media platforms is a disgrace to the church. It's a disgrace to our God. We're putting politics and positions over the hearts of people for whom he died. And what we've got to do is remember who we are. And we don't look for political solutions to the darkness in this world. It's never going to work. We don't try to convince people who may be left of sinner that they need to come right of sinner and be on our side because that's Jesus' side. What we need to do is be evangelists for one thing and one thing only, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this emphasis that we've put on politics, most notably, not exclusively, but most notably in evangelical, conservative evangelical churches, we've almost made it appear that if you're not a Republican, if you're not voting the straight party ticket, then you're not going to make it heaven. And that, Susan, is a horrible misrepresentation of the heart of our God. So uh, the only way the church can be unified is if we are unified in the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he's called us to do, and if we would just leave politics out of the mix. You want to be involved in politics? Vote. Vote. If you have a candidate you want to support, then you support him. But do not misrepresent Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, please do not misrepresent Jesus Christ by getting involved in the down and dirty world of politics because, well, this candidate is more godly than that candidate. If you're watching what's going on in Washington, D.C. right now, I don't see any godliness. I don't see any godliness coming from either side. Thank you, Susan. Randy asks, should pastors preach from disputed passages of Scripture like John chapter 8 and Mark chapter 16? And Randy, as you know, there are a few others. Let me address the dispute part of these disputed passages of Scripture. Um, They're only disputed in the sense that some of the manuscripts contain those passages and others do not. And so the dispute is, well, which set of manuscripts do you believe? Now, when, when, when uh, 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 the newer translations, um, they'll draw a line in your Bible and say, these are disputed passages and do not appear in the best of manuscripts. Um, I take offense a little bit at, at their, their, their characterization of the best manuscripts because they're only... Um, measuring stick is is age. They think the older the manuscript, the more authoritative it is. I've never bought that line of reasoning. Here's what we have to understand. If you're looking at a King James or a new King James, uh, an authorized version, um, you're looking at a, a very faithful, uh, a very effective translation of the majority manuscripts. Texas Receptus, the majority manuscripts. If you're looking at one of the newer translations, I favor the the 1984 version of the NIV, but it could be any of the others, the NASB or 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 some of the others. Um, they're faithfully translating the Alexandrian set of manuscripts, and in the Alexandrian manuscripts, those passages, Mark or John 8, Mark chapter 16, and some others, do not appear. Now the newer versions don't try to hide those passages of Scripture. They they draw your attention to them. They include them in there. They just say they're not in some of the translations. So th- that's the only dispute. It's the dispute between manuscript evidence 
and the, the manuscript evidence we have, while overwhelming, there is differences, and we need to recognize and be honest about those differences. Re- relative to whether or not we should preach them or teach through them, I believe 100%, and I'm a 1984 NIV guy, and they say these are not some of the best manuscripts or, or these passages are, are, are questionable. Uh, and, and I say they're there. They don't do any harm to the to the to what we know is preserved in the Word of God. There's nothing heretical about them. There's nothing contradictory about them. And, and I believe they ought to be in there just because the newer transcripts or the newer versions, uh, the, the, the Alexandrian manuscripts, didn't contain them doesn't mean that they don't have value or doesn't mean that they weren't intended by the Holy Spirit to be there. And you see, Randy, it's questions like this that demonstrate that we're dealing honestly with these issues of difference. We're not trying to pretend that the Bible has no problems. It does. But it's still in the midst of having disputes like this. It is still inerrant. It is still the Word of God. It will still stand forever. And I believe that passages... Uh, like those two that you mentioned, not only ought to be taught, but we ought to spend some time on them. Uh, They are consistent with the messages in the rest of scriptures. So, Randy, I hope that makes some sense. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I've got two things. Uh, Gospel of John, chapter 848 uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and and uh, he's telling them, you know, that, well, they're, they're telling him that he has a devil, and they say, and my question is, what grounds did they have to call Jesus a Samaritan, or were, or were they just being, like, really snarky to him uh, to say that? And also, when uh, Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, fell on him, so wasn't Jesus was probably already filled with the Holy Spirit, I would imagine, from conception or birth. So was it just, you know, God showing, you know, how how um, how proud he was of Jesus or, or you know, that, that Jesus was his son when, when the spirit landed, when the dove landed on him. Okay. So those, those are my questions. Monday night Thank was you, really Cindy. good, by the way. Linda did a superb job. Thank you very, very much. I haven't had a chance to listen yet, so I look forward to doing that probably Friday. Oh, it's, thank it's good, thank it's you, Cindy. Fun, okay. Let, she let me... After and made it, made of it. She took a really confusing uh, part of the chapter and made a whole lot of sense of it. I'll get off the yeah. phone and listen on the radio. Okay, thank you. Uh, you know, Cindy, I mean, not Cindy, uh, Linda was teaching out of uh, Judges, and she was she was teaching the story of Jephthah. And uh, it is a confusing part of Scripture, and uh, I'm certain Linda did a really good job. Uh, you can all go listen to it uh, at calvaryessay.com if you'd like. Uh, let me deal uh, first with with the second question, Cindy. Uh, when the Spirit came upon Jesus, it, it wasn't Jesus wasn't born with the Holy Spirit as a man, a baby. He was not born with the Holy Spirit the way we understand the Holy Spirit. Jesus had no sin nature. So Jesus was holy from birth. Without sin, he committed no offense, no violence was found ever in his life. So so Jesus was holy. When we see him being baptized and the Spirit descending on him in the form of dove, that was sort of like the inauguration of his ministry. It was It was God saying to him, it's time now to begin your descent into humiliation, or we would say his descent to the cross. And so it wasn't uh, uh, the Holy Spirit, um, um, it wasn't God saying, I'm proud of you, that that's Jesus, of course the Father says that about Jesus. But this was just sort of a go. You know, when uh, I'm watching the World Track Championships now, and, and the, the starter will say, to your marks! And then they'll say, set and go. Well, well, when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, that was God the Father opening up a very specific line of communication between him and his son that would, would enable Jesus to do anything and everything 
that that the the Father had set before him to do. So again, Jesus, unlike the disciples who received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Jesus is the genesis of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, it's not the same for Jesus, Cindy, as it is for you and for me. Uh, Regarding John chapter 8, um, the Jews, remember, they were always lying about Jesus. Remember the time when they looked at him and he said, uh, uh, if Abraham were your father, um, you would believe in me. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And, and they, they said, oh, we know Abraham's our father. But then they accused him of being a bastard son. They accused him, we know who our father is. They're saying, you don't even know who your father is. And of course, the, the, the rumor persisted throughout Jesus' life that that his father was a Roman soldier and his his um, um, uh, sinful mother um, slept with this Roman soldier and Jesus was a product of that. So the, the idea that they're lying about Jesus isn't new. And so when... Jesus was accused of being a drunkard. He wasn't. Jesus was accused here in John eight forty eight of being demon-possessed. We know that he wasn't. And um, Jesus rebukes them. So they're, they're lying about Jesus. They're trying to persuade the crowds around Jesus to stop following him. And none of their lies, of course, worked. Um, um, Jesus understood what the source of the lies was and so too must we so Cindy thank you for the question but uh, they were just really good at telling lies 340-9585 here is an anonymous question Um, ooh a hard question should people in church who support abortion be subject to church discipline I've never had the question answered like that. I've said before, Anonymous, that uh, I don't believe that uh, any real Christian, and we we know a lot of people profess to be Christians who aren't. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, but I will say, depart from me, you doer of iniquity, for I never knew you. So we we have to understand that, that there are a lot of people who say they're Christians who just aren't. It's that simple. Uh, they, they know about Jesus, but they don't know him. Their hearts haven't been transformed. It is inconceivable to me, Anonymous, that anybody who's really born again, anybody who's met Jesus, could be an abortion supporter under any circumstances. And um, while I know there are, uh, it just ought not to be. Um, and and um, should they be subject to church discipline? I would treat them like an unbeliever rather than treating them like a believer who needs to be disciplined. Um, you know, people don't come to me and talk to me about abortion. They know what my position, what the Bible's position on abortion is. Uh, if somebody came to me and, and, um, and uh, I thought they were Christian and they said that they were... Um, and they wouldn't say I'm pro-abortion. They they would say, well, I'm pro-choice. You know, I believe it's a woman's right to choose. Um, if they said that to me, I would I would have a conversation with them. And if they persisted in that belief, uh, then I would I would presume that they're unbelievers. So I can do that without judging their soul. It's just like somebody who says I'm a believer, but I'm living with a person. I'm having sex with a person that I'm not married to. And I would say, well, what makes you think you're a Christian? The same thing would be true. But church discipline is for real believers who need to be disciplined. Uh, just because somebody's in a church does not mean that they are a Christian. My old pastor used to say, you know, to, to, to go to church doesn't mean you're a Christian any more than going to McDonald's means you're a hamburger. Um, as, as somebody in church who was pro-abortion um, I think anonymous. We would treat them like an unbeliever, and the way we treat them, that doesn't mean we shun them or we kick them out. But what it means is that we continually talk to them about Jesus. And by the way, I want unbelievers in church every week, every time we open the doors. I want unbelievers to be here, and I'm going to tell them the truth, and they're going to be more and more accountable. But but who knows? They keep coming. The Holy Spirit's still dragging them. 
uh, at some point they're going to listen. And the only way I know to convince people is to give them the Word of God, let the Word of God uh, change them by the power of the Spirit of God. And then Jesus, when they meet him, he'll do the changing in their minds and hearts. So I hope that helps. We have two minutes left in the program. Let me do the last question. It is also anonymous. Um, As a believing parent, should I take my kids out of public school because of their focus on transgender sexuality? Um, uh, Anonymous, that's a decision that has to be made. Um, in the in the councils of prayer, just between you and the Lord, um, I believe that public schools need saved kids. Um, a lot of it would depend. My answer would depend on uh, your relationship with the Lord, how committed your kids are, uh, if they're Christians by contact, and by that I mean we raise a bunch of kids, we drag them to church, but that doesn't mean their hearts have been won to Jesus. Those are the people, the kids that I really wouldn't want to have in public school. Um, not only because of their focus on transgender issues, but climate change. Have you seen what schools are doing to your children in terms of scaring them to death? They're becoming irrationally focused on climate change. And there needs to be a Christian presence in these public schools. Say, wait a minute, Psalm 46 says, or Jesus is coming back and the earth is going to be here. So until he's back, don't worry about it. God's got this. He's holding it together. So those are the issues that you should should be concerned about. And, and I would add, again, this is just something that you can only deal with in terms of, of fervent prayer. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Remember, tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with us on the Date Day Edition. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.